for an emotion that brings people together. Love really divides opinion. Some for the worse, or better, never experience love. It is simply a chemical combination in our brains designed to promote the reproduction of humanity. Practical thinking. But others write songs, make films, poetry, create art, buy products, stand in the shadows watching someone on their way home, all for love, with a few select people claiming it's even the meaning of life. But between the two, there's a spectrum of ambiguity. Foggy grey areas, blurred ethics and overthought text replies, a spectrum that somewhere we all fall onto, and at the deepest points of these murky ethics there's an interesting tale about Arnold Bauhammer. That's a bit of a complex name, but I'll only refer to him by his famous official title, the Duke of Green. There was no place called Green, it was called Grenford technically, but the Duke was famous for his green fingers, his passion for horticulture. I don't think you or I have ever heard of a poor Duke, at least not one poor in pocket, and the Duke of Green's roots were certainly not in poverty. He was a showman, who'd aged gracefully, distinctive, refined, always had the last laugh and loved to outsmart everyone. A bit of a horticultural hedonist, you might say. He blew thousands on lavish excursions to exotic countries, hunting for rare flowers or new specimens for his collection, invested months at a time on topiary projects, that's the art of shaping perennial plants into living sculptures. He even handmade a lake that took several hundred workers eight years to complete. He even had a go on the digger himself a few times. He was regarded as the Picasso of gardening, and it was all for his wife, Wendelin, Wendy, the Duchess of Green. See, the reason he travelled the globe was to find new species he could name after her. Wendy's copper, a rare snowdrop, was his most recent find, growing on the side of a ditch in Bolivia. They had a unique heart-shaped copper marking, and they cost up to £100 for two bulbs. That's a lot for a plant, isn't it? All the topiary sculptures he created resembled a female form the Duchess recognised, embarrassingly, as her own, albeit roughly. The Duke was still improving as a sculptor. When they threw parties and drank a little too much, Wendy would poke fun at them, posing next to herself for photographs in the same contorted angles. The Duke found it funny, but inside he was a little sad. And the lake? Because she grew up by the coast, from the same seaside town where the great rinky-dink pier used to stand. We'll talk about the pier another time. The Duke did a lot for his wife, but he was most famous for a building on his estate named the Greenhouse. The Greenhouse was a play on the Duke of Green's name, yes, but it was also a humorous understatement. Onlookers compared it to the Emerald City in The Wizard of Oz. It was more of a palace, made up of thousands of intricately cut shards of crystals, all in irregular shapes, held together with lead and wrought iron, painted white that twisted and weaved and intertwined like the branches of an old wisteria tree. It seemed to carve out of the ground like a mountain. 
Inside the greenhouse, the Duke showcased all the imported plant life he collected from around the globe. Species from the Americas, Australasia, Asia and the Pacific, coconut, plantain, ginger, black pepper, ferns and tall bamboo and other grasses. It was insane. He installed a steam system that would hiss at regular intervals with moisture into the air, keeping it humid enough to replicate the delicate climate of the plants he kept there. There was a balcony high around the central hub of the greenhouse that let walkers look out on the estate from the level of the canopy and look down into the beautiful forest he'd created inside. And if that didn't raise your eyebrows, the Duke's most proud possession in there was a central tree that grew so straight and tall the Duke had to pay to have the dome of his own building removed so it didn't burst through the roof. It was a bit of an issue in storms, admittedly, rain leaked in and lightning was a problem. It became famous as the unluckiest tree in the world for being struck three times. I compared the Duke to Picasso, but I didn't just mean it in talent for his craft. If you know any information about Picasso's personal life, you'll know love in a person as complex as him or the Duke of Green creates conflicting behaviour when it comes to loyalty. You see, the greenhouse, the Duke's greatest show of love for his wife, was not for her. When Elizabeth I was Queen of England, it was a Protestant Christian state. Catholics were effectively outlawed, but Catholic believers were fiercely loyal. They carried around pocket-sized altar stones. They smuggled rosary beads branded superstitious, even entire hidden chapels within the walls of their own homes. Pipes were concealed in the masonry to feed priests hiding in little priest holes who were executed if found by searching officials. In renovations of old estates, secret rooms no bigger than a shoe cupboard have been found within the walls. A few have even been found with bones inside. Very few people would attempt to hide a priest in a glass house for obvious reasons, or secret lovers for that matter. But the Duke, maybe not even to his conscious mind, just loved the idea of hiding in plain sight. See, the Duke wasn't the nicest person to women. He did love his wife, but he had no immunity to other attractive women and had long come to terms with this dark side of his mind. Now he had a building in plain sight, completely transparent, in which to hide in, and he took a twisted joy in finding a way to do that. In a room full of window panes, refracted light, reflected images, and dense shadowy foliage, right next to a very distracting large tree, a single mirror at just the right angle, the size maybe of a small door, say, is impossible to spot. In the thick bushes around the base of the tree, a mirrored door led down a few spiral steps to a circular room underneath. The roots of the tree provided the structural walls of the chamber, holding it up like the poles of a teepee. It was a little dark, but the Duke didn't mind having to light a few candles by a large pile of smuggled pillows and sheets. 
When the sun fell behind the trees and the gardening staff were finishing their duties, the Duke would jump in his golf cart and drive around checking on everything. He'd always do a big loop of the estate, showing his face to the groundsman, having a chat, then passing by the greenhouse. He always arrived when the intern, Maggie, was just finishing her work. Maggie was a graduate in zoology and worked as an unpaid intern on the estate, picking weeds and shredding old branches. She was young, had big eyes, blonde hair braided up one side. She was totally irresistible to the Duke. And when you have as much status as the Duke of Green, and as much showmanship, that status is impressionable on younger people, especially when their job is to maintain that outward aura of grandeur. She was impressed, a little starstruck that the Duke had taken such an interest in her, and very quickly she became a victim. The affair developed faster than either of them were prepared for. Every day they looked forward to meeting briefly a couple of times as he drove by, then their longer chats in the evening. He eventually showed her his secret room in the greenhouse. He said he'd go to think by himself. Soon the two of them had deep feelings for each other. The Duke made the first move one evening in the secret room. But he knew how he felt. As much as he loved Maggie, he loved his wife and couldn't bring himself to choose between them. When summer was gone, the evenings meant it was usually dark by 4pm. The Duke spent more time in his greenhouse, and everyone thought by the single candlelight in there that he was alone working. But the candlelight was left as a signal. Maggie would slip into the greenhouse, climb through the bushes in near pitch black darkness, and down into the secret room where the Duke waited. And for about six months, they both willingly conducted an affair. The story goes that Wendy was looking out of her bedroom window across the estate one winter morning at kids from the village breaking and throwing chunks of ice across the frozen lake. The sound was this unusual zapping skid of ice on ice, cracking deep underwater, and the gulls were awkwardly skidding around on the surface. Wendy noticed some of the topiary statues in the garden were looking a little bare. She was worried it could be the missed signs of a fungus called box blight, and if there were going to be statues of her standing around the estate, at least they could look presentable, right? It was an unwritten rule, but the garden staff generally didn't go near the figures. Somehow, it seemed inappropriate. Wendy grabbed her gloves, secateurs and a bucket, and wellied out to fix them up. It began for her as a little annoyance, a fake jovial sense of insult that the Duke had let the statues go a little. It wasn't a deadly fungus, it turns out, but they didn't seem to be well kept, even for the Duke's standards. Then, a feeling he might be trying to hint something. As it turns out, they were pruned, but they were skinnier, less thought put into the curves, less time. It wasn't like he'd just forgotten to upkeep them, if anything they were overpruned. And then finally, suspicion. She looked around. All the statues were a little like this. They were leaner and younger. It was raining that night, quite heavily, but the Duke, faithful to his schedule, still went out in his golf cart to inspect the grounds before coming home. From the top bedroom, through the streaming tears down the window, the Duchess watched her husband scuttle around, park his car behind the greenhouse, and head inside. 
She waited and watched before realising what she'd become. She was being paranoid. It's said she pulled the curtains, but just caught a glimpse of movement before they were fully shut. She pulled them apart a little and saw someone in staff uniform slip into the greenhouse. Maggie did not like being in the greenhouse at night during a storm. The sound was a loud, consistent chorus, like leaving the TV on a channel with no signal. The opening around the top of the tree let the rain in, so getting in and out of the secret room was damp and wet and definitely not sexy. In the dark, she scrambled around, unable to find the mirror that concealed the Duke. Calling out, the Duke heard her, opened the door and let her inside. As Maggie slipped past him down into their secret bedroom, the Duke glanced over her shoulder. He saw the greenhouse door was wide open. A dark, recognisably shaped figure stood in it, looking right at him. The Duke quickly closed the mirrored door. From the footsteps and rustling through the sound of rain, he knew she had seen him. With nothing to brace the door, he held the handle tight himself, Maggie hiding downstairs. The Duchess was screaming, clambering around madly just on the other side of the door through the branches, but the door handle remained untouched. She could not find him. The mirrored door was still deceiving. The rain poured harder, and through the wails of a woman betrayed, cutting and bruising herself wading through the thicket, looking for her husband only centimetres away, the Duke's heart broke. He felt her go silent, then the door handle pull in his hand. He didn't resist it. She opened the door, and they were there, face to face. For a glass house, deliberately controlled with moisture, in the middle of a rainstorm, how a fire could have broken out from that lightning strike baffled the firefighters. The tree was still glowing red in splinters when dawn arrived. Most disturbing was the discovery of a secret room guarded on either side of a shattered door by the Duke and Duchess, the skin of their hands fused to the handles, bodies boiled, faceless and blistered. Investigators found the secret room perfectly protected and guessed from the candles and pillows what could have been, but nobody was down there. It's a pretty serious dare to enter the Grenford greenhouse today. It's still burnt down and the charred frame still stands, paint peeled and rusted, most of the crystal looted except for a few shards in the soil. With the Duke and Duchess dead, the staff worked a little to clean up, but they weren't paid and eventually they all left. The house fell into ownership of an agrophobic shadowy man and the grounds wilted away with neglect and nature. The grounds don't need to be guarded. Very few people have the guts to trespass. But if you do decide to break in, and you've ever cheated on someone, here's a warning. Some say that if you step outside of your relationship and step into the greenhouse, you can sometimes hear the dull footsteps of bare feet on glass from a person who isn't there. Sometimes up on the balcony, sometimes 
right behind you. There are those who have heard wailing from the cracked tree, sometimes rustling in the bushes next to them. And once or twice, people have witnessed the figure of a naked woman watching them the entire time. Black, skin split pink, featureless, sprinting directly towards you in complete, stealthy silence. This was an episode of Penny Fable. If you enjoyed listening, do recommend us to your friends. And don't forget to subscribe to never miss a future tale. And the moral of this story? The Murky Motel has 50% off for any couple with the surname Smith. Book now. Quote Side Salad for half price double rooms. That's Side Salad for half price double rooms. Thank you.